Welcome to episode two of the Climate History Podcast, the official podcast of the Climate History Network and historicalclimatology.com. Today, I'm joined by Professor Sam White of Ohio State University. Professor White is one of the leading climate historians of the Little Ice Age. His first book, The Climate of Rebellion in the Early Modern Ottoman Empire, explores how climate change destabilized the Ottoman Empire in the 16th and 17th centuries. It won the Middle East Studies Association Albert Horani Award, the Turkish Studies Association Fuat Koprulu Award, and the British Kuwaiti Friendship Society Prize for the best book in Middle East and Turkish studies. Professor White has also published some of the most innovative and sophisticated articles about the environmental history of early modern climate change. One of them, entitled From Globalized Pigs to Capitalist Pigs, a study in animal cultures and evolutionary history, published in the journal Environmental History, won the American Society for Environmental History Leopold Hilde Prize and the Agricultural History Association Wayne D. Rasmussen Award. Another recent article, entitled The Real Little Ice Age, published in a journal of interdisciplinary history, should be required reading for anyone interested in past climate change. Thank you so much, Professor White, for joining the podcast today. Well, thank you very much for inviting me. So first, we'll start with a big announcement. We've just received a major grant from Georgetown University to revamp our online presence at climatehistorynetwork.com. And so we're delighted about that. And, uh, and yeah, expect some big changes and expect uh, for us to work on that very soon. And speaking of which, I'd like to start by talking about the Climate History Network. So can you describe our network for listeners who may not be aware of everything it is we do? And how did you come up with this idea? So the Climate History Network is a website, a listserv, a professional network, all designed to bring together historians interested in past climate change, uh, mostly environmental historians, uh, also historical geographers interested in climate reconstruction, uh, climatologists, uh, in some cases modelers, and others all interested in past climate and what kind of impact it has on people. We started this really informally just because nothing of its kind existed. We saw climate history starting up as a field, but without any real coordination, without any way for different people and different disciplines to get in touch. And so it seemed imperative at least to have a basic website and a mailing list, just so we could share news, share ideas. And over time, that just kept growing. We kept expecting uh, somebody else in a major research university, since at the time I was at Oberlin College, and uh, you, Dagmar, you were a still grad student, uh, that, that somebody was going to come and take that over uh, and help us build it up. But in the end, uh, it, we were the ones who got into the major research universities and, and uh, you know, looked for the grants and built up the network and eventually the uh, listserv and other aspects. And uh, that's where we are today. Uh, so it's now a question of how we plan for the future and what kind of uh, resources and support we can get. That's actually funny. I'm, I'm just looking at our first emails to each other now. Uh, <laughs> I started with, hi, Sam, if I may. <laughs> Yikes. Um, okay, yeah. Um, of what, maybe, maybe 29 years old or... <laughs> 
little younger, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, and is there anything that surprised you about building this network? Is is there something that has worked out differently than you initially expected? It's hard to say because I didn't have strong expectations going in. I just thought that something had to be done. And I'm pleased with how well things have turned out, especially given that we've managed to do this really on a shoestring so far, yeah. uh, just with uh, virtually no funds and our own work going into this. I'm, my, it, I'm pleasantly surprised at how many people we've gotten to join, uh, how many ways we've managed to get people in touch, uh, how successful we've been when we've managed to put together meetings at other conferences and workshops. I guess my, insofar as I'm disappointed, it's that I'd really like more people to get involved from other areas. I'd like more members of the network to really own it, to use it as a way to get their work out and to help build uh, big new projects. And I'm hoping that another uh, project that I'm involved in, this is the Palgrave Handbook to Climate History, mm -hmm. uh, will be another way in which we can uh, have something else that will reach out to many people in the field and uh, help get them aware of the variety of work that's done related to climate history and what they might benefit from working with each other. Yeah, I have to say what's really struck me, there's a few things that have struck me. Um, I guess right now it's probably the popularity of these sites that we have or the popularity of our online presence. So historicalclimatology.com is kind of loosely associated with the network. Um, it got 4,000 hits the other day. You know, I updated maybe <laughs> once a month, <laughs> once or twice a month. And uh, it's just striking the level of popular interest. It's, it's quite remarkable. The other thing would be that we've set this stuff up, like you say, with very little work. Now, it's got to be consistent. But at the same time, it's, it's not like this is our lives. And it just shows me that this is kind of an untapped opportunity, I think, for many other, especially junior scholars, who are just starting out and, and might want to do something different and something special and something that contributes to their field. And so would you recommend that, that other junior scholars try something like, I don't know, not necessarily setting up a climate history network, but setting up some kind of online presence? Yes, definitely. Uh, I'm surprised by how many hits this do get. Uh, I'm pleasantly surprised, of course, and I'd always hope that uh, you know people want to get at this information. Uh, but yes, I mean, it's certainly, especially compared to, say, the number of citations or reads that even a fairly good popular article gets uh, in, a, in a major academic journal, it's just a way of reaching people much faster uh, than through the usual process of academic publication. So, in that sense, well, I certainly hope, uh, first and foremost, that other people would come and help build off of our website uh, and have pages that are you know, part of it or linked to it. Uh, for graduate students working in other subfields uh, or new areas of research that really they need to get into a wider academic audience or even wider popular audience fast, then definitely having this kind of web presence is key. Do you think that there's a risk to starting something like this. I mean, I know that when we started, I was constantly afraid of making a fool of myself, to be honest, because I knew that this was reaching people who were much, much more senior than me, 
in the field. And of course, eventually I wanted a job in the field. Do you think that there, that a, a lot of junior scholars sort of feel the same way? And, and are these fears justified? I don't think they are. If anything, I worry that too many graduate students going into history now are too timid, are too focused on filling in some small aspect of some existing historiography. Given the job market the way it is, uh, given that a lot of history departments are shrinking and not expanding, the biggest risk you can take is not to take a risk. The biggest risk you can take is to produce work that, even if it may be solid and, and thoroughly researched, that doesn't have something really original to say, it doesn't make a new impact. So reaching out this way through websites is one good way of helping to make that impact and helping to establish what is different and what is original about your work. Yeah, I, I very strongly agree with that. Um, speaking of research, has the network shaped your scholarship and teaching, and, and if so, how? The most important way is just the number of people I've gotten to know and who've gotten to know me because of of the Climate History Network, and, and more recently because of emails through the listserv. It, it's funny because I used to be a heavy participant in a lot of HNET discussion lists, uh, when, when they used to be more active, before most people got a daily digest. And it was funny is that there were certain people you felt like you knew, <laughs> you felt like they were old acquaintances of yours because their emails kept popping up in your box as, as editors of one or another of these lists. And in some ways, uh, now I've gotten to, to play that same role, where people feel uh, that they know me uh, and that they see me as uh, someone who can help them reach a wider audience or put them in contact with new people in the field. And in that way, I've gotten to know more people. I think I've gotten the trust of other scholars in the field. And so it, it helps open up new possibilities for uh, meeting people at conferences, for thinking about collaboration, thinking about putting together uh, panels and workshops and so forth. Yeah, it would have been hard to imagine, at least for myself, reaching out to scientists, reaching out to people in other disciplines without some of what we do. I mean, we don't have as many scientists as I would like, of course, but we do have some. And this is something that's really made it more easy for me to communicate with people in other disciplines and also in other countries and other cultures. Um, we're increasingly getting people now, I think, from outside of a Western context. And, and that's pretty exciting, although we still have a little bit of work to do there as well. Um, yes, certainly. And, and, and yeah, so and that ties into my next question as well. Where do you see us being in five years? It's a good question. <laughs> we could run for president. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I suppose I see several things happening in the next five years. I would see... Our membership expanding, mm. uh, but not necessarily dramatically expanding. I would see us having uh, better resource, better produced materials and website. Uh, I would see us also hopefully being a real resource to forge new collaborations uh, among scholars, especially new scholars coming into the field, uh, who, because of their areas of specialty, whether it's uh, thematic or methodological or or geographical, uh, need to reach out to other scholars, need to find ways to make that kind of contact among different specialists. <clears throat> Beyond that, though, it's, it's hard to say. Uh, I 
it depends a bit on the direction that historical climatology or climate history takes within academia more widely. It's certainly not a fact. It's certainly not something that's going to go away. Even if by some miracle we were to drastically reduce greenhouse gas emissions now, we'd be fairly certain that we're going to have generations of climate change to come, and that's going to keep a lot of attention on climate history as well. Uh, in fact, even the climate changes that are occurring now will soon be climate history, or are becoming climate history every day. Mm-hmm. However, based on the experience of other important historical subfields and environmental history more widely, that could lead to one of two different types of directions. Uh, it could mean, on the one hand, that it becomes a increasingly well-established, uh, well-defined subfield, in this case a very multidisciplinary subfield, uh, with its own practitioners and its particular form of training. It could also mean, however, that it becomes a regular part of what historians do, uh, whether it's economic or social or political historians. That is to say that awareness of past climate change and contemporary climate change and its impact will work its way into other historical fields. I think in particular the ways, for instance, that women and gender, gender history is done. And so depending on which of those paths the wider field of study takes, um, it will change the role of what the climate history network needs to do. Uh, whether it's primarily about uh, specialists trying to reach out to others in the field, others in the field of history or geography uh, or social sciences in order to help them uh, do their work, which incorporates climate. Or whether it becomes about a larger specialty uh, within the field operating on its own and trying to help bring together the different areas of expertise, uh, both geographical and methodological. Hmm. Do you think that climate history is an important part of a new movement, that Edward O. Wilson consilience sort of idea that we're heading towards the breakdown of disciplinary boundaries and we're heading towards a new model of scholarship where the sciences and humanities and the social sciences work hand in hand, and that's maybe the future? Yes and no. Mm. Uh, at a smaller, more practical level, I think it's an important step towards the ways in which scholars in the humanities and some social sciences are going to be trained. The model of graduate students doing entirely solo work for several years in history in order to produce a PhD solely to demonstrate expertise in a certain type of historical research is probably a model that is going to see its final days. Uh, It's hard to see how that can be justified given the pressure put on different disciplines, even in the humanities, to solve contemporary problems. I think that is ultimately going to lead to a change whereby scholars, even in the humanities and history, are going to have to learn how to do multidisciplinary and often multi-author work. And in that sense, climate history is a leading edge in that change, um, which I expect to see in other aspects of history as well. I also think it reflects a different way in which academia is is going to focus on problem solving more widely. Uh, That is to say, we're going to think about large issues such as climate change, as opposed to simply methodologies and problems within disciplines as they exist today. Uh, And climate change, again, will be on the leading edge of that because it is such a large problem. It is so inherently multidisciplinary. 
insofar as reaching broader conciliates, I certainly hope in the long run we can see that dream fulfilled. But it's going to remain a dream for a while, uh, not just because of practical barriers or standard problems of interdisciplinary work or different departments working together in a university, but I think because there are also fundamentally different intellectual goals among different disciplines. And in fact, climate change research is a good example of this. Mm. The ultimate product of many studies in climate history that come out of uh, climatology, or to some extent even in uh, branches of archaeology uh, and other social sciences, is often a well-defined and well-measured correlation. Yeah. Uh, which, whereas, and it's also about finding, in many cases, large patterns and workable models to help explain past and present. Whereas, fundamentally, the goal in history and the humanities is to tell the particular story of particular things that happened. It's not so much about uh, identifying correlations and patterns as providing a fundamental, deep understanding of particular cases. And I wouldn't want to see either go away. I think there's great value in being able to identify patterns and correlations. I think that can help guide us in the present and future. I also think, however, that there's great value in in-depth understanding of particular case studies, of particular times and places, of particular human experiences, because ultimately we learn a great deal by storytelling, and we learn a great deal by our ability, our fundamentally human ability to put ourselves into others' shoes and understand their experiences and see what of those experiences might apply to us in the present and future. So I wouldn't necessarily want those to melt together. I think they're two valuable approaches, uh, both of which need to be pursued. Yeah, I, I strongly agree with that. And I think we both have experience working in multidisciplinary teams with scientists. And I constantly keep going back to what is it about me and my disciplinary training that gives me the ability to contribute in a different way than a scientist might. And a lot of it does come down to my ability to tell particular stories uh, and be more familiar with those particular stories uh, than scientists. But I still wonder if there are best practices for historians working in these multidisciplinary uh, teams reconstructing past climate changes and how they impacted human histories. What do you think? Yes, so certainly. So uh, we definitely have a contribution to make by ensuring, first of all, that historical data are uh, available and are used appropriately, mm -hmm. uh, and that interpretations that involve uh, working with historical information or seeing long-term patterns uh, are well informed, uh, that we don't jump to inappropriate conclusions on the basis of data that are, are misunderstood or haven't been well analyzed. Uh, and I would also strongly encourage uh, you know, historians to work with multidisciplinary teams, including scientists, also because by doing so we get a better appreciation and understanding for what it is that people are doing in climate sciences. Uh, there are things that you can learn from keeping up with the scientific literature and reading journal articles, but other things that you can really only learn by having a 
personal acquaintance with other fields and with other scholars in those fields. Uh, so that's certainly important. In terms of setting best practices, uh, that's, that's something that I think we're still working out. In a way, the geographers, especially uh, European historical climatologists and geography departments, uh, led the way in that uh, mm -hmm. by trying to understand, you know, what ways you can gather historical data and put it together in formats that scientists can really use it. And the success that uh, scholars like uh, Christian Pfister, Rudolf Braswell have had in that field is, is really quite remarkable and uh, some, definitely something that we can build on. Uh, I think the next step will be seeing if we can also develop best practices in terms of how scientists uh, tell stories uh, about those data. And by that, I, I don't mean tell stories as in write monographs or even long descriptive narrative articles, yeah. but there are stories embedded in the ways in which uh, you get analysis and conclusion of articles that it might even be short format articles, but are it might even seem to be about data. Uh, in other words, you can't help but avoid telling some certain story in the way you present your results and analysis. And I think we also need to figure out how we can be involved in there. And that's going to be tough because I think at the moment we're often simply naysayers. We're often simply the ones who say, that's determinist, that's simplistic, you need to say more. Uh, we need to figure out some way that within the conventions of scientific literature, we can give more accurate, uh, more informative conclusions uh, without, you know, just simply uh, being negative about, you know, potential uh, simplicity of determinism uh, that exists now. No, I, I strongly agree with that. I, I think one possible avenue into that is the way in which we can examine documentary evidence and use paleographical skills that perhaps scientists might not have uh, to reconstruct past climates and to find new relationships between past climates and human history. So that might be a potential uh, avenue where we can, our role can become a little bit more than just um, that of the critic. Um, but it's true that we need kind of uh, to work on that. And I think we also need to work on how we link climate change to human affairs. And to find, now not to get too much into these patterns and models that uh, we might identify more with the scientists, but are there methods and models that you find especially compelling for doing that, for linking climate change to human affairs in the past, the present, or the future? It's quite difficult because I think we're now at something of a turning point in the field. Mm -hmm. uh, for a long time, we were basically just trying to establish that climate really mattered. And we were building case studies and examples to support that big point. And now that that point, I think, has been well established, we need to just go back through the case studies that we've developed uh, and perhaps develop more uh, in order to see whether there really are more solid connections and lessons uh, and long, larger stories that might apply to more than simply the specific case studies uh, that we've chosen. And as we're doing that, I think we're going to start to find ways that we can better help scientists who are expecting certain patterns or expecting certain uh, uh, correlations uh, and, and try to you know, have those other examples and have those other uh, ideas at our fingertips uh, so that we can 
better inform their work. <clears throat> so both of us have now taught climate history. This is my first time, really, this term, uh, teaching a course dedicated specifically to climate history. I, I think you've done it a couple times now, at least, right? Mm -hmm. Yes. How do you teach climate history? So what I've done so far is to try to think about the major concepts that students really need to work with, and then try to find useful examples to help illustrate those con concepts and then bring them together. Mm. So students need to start with understanding the essential scientific evidence for past climate change. They need to understand uh, the role of uh, different climate uh, forces and forcings, and to understand how we can interpret information about past climate and weather uh, from physical proxies. Uh, they also need to understand the essential documentary evidence from different periods. And I tend to focus for that on, on the Little Ice Age because it's, it's more familiar to me and it's often more accessible to students. Uh, but then they also need to understand some of the bigger topics that we struggle with. Uh, for instance, uh, climate and causation, climate and culture, climate and conflict. Uh, and so I try to find useful case studies that help illustrate those, uh, and particularly ones that might actually be more controversial, where you have scholarship arguing for and against a role of climate in history, uh, so that students can see what the potentials and limits of this kind of study are. No, yeah, I, I strongly agree with that. I've tried to follow some of those principles myself. I started actually about 40 million years in the past <laughs> in my course. And so the focus was enormous. And I started with a lot of earth science, um, which I'm sure was quite challenging for the students. But I, I was hoping that if they have the background in earth science, then the rest can sort of come alive for them when we start talking about the medieval warm period, or what's now called, of course, the medieval climatic anomaly, or the little ice age, or any of these other periods with which we're more familiar. Um, and I think that's that's worked okay. And it really helps that there's a lot of books now that you can use. That's quite different, I think, from the way it was, you know, five, six years ago. And now there are so many actually popular, accessible books uh, written by some really bright people, some really good writers uh, that the students can appreciate. Um, yes. Anyway, moving on to specifically The Little Ice Age. Now, you are one of the people I respect the most in terms of what your research has told us about the Little Ice Age. So maybe you can tell our listeners, what is the Little Ice Age? And what have been the most important contributions of your research in helping us understand how this Little Ice Age affected human history? So that, for me, is still a difficult question to answer. Mm. I'm more confident in saying that there is a Little Ice Age than in saying precisely what it was. Mm. And the reason for that is that the Little Ice Age is more than just simply a period of cooling. It's also an era in human history. And I think it, we not only do, but really must to some extent define it by its human impact uh, and its role in, in, in the human past. So in that sense, there are different ways that we could start it. Uh, we could start it with the Great Famine of the 1310s uh, in Europe, which had echoes as well in, in other parts of the Northern Hemisphere, including China. Uh, and if we do it that way, 
then we can tell it really as a story of certain climatic disasters, especially in better researched areas of, of history in the Northern Hemisphere. Uh, or we could start it when we're fairly certain that there was, by and large, global cooling. Uh, and again, this is particularly true of the Northern Hemisphere, but it seems to be true of comments in the Southern Hemisphere as well, which would really start the Little Ice Age somewhat later, uh, probably in the 15th century. Uh, or we can focus on the Little Ice Age in the period in which it had the greatest human impacts, in which we can see the most clearly defined cooling in both hemispheres, which is really from the late 16th century, probably to the beginning of the 18th century. So there, I think there's a good case to be made for any one of those. My own research has largely focused on that narrower definition that I put at the end, uh, really the major impacts of the late 16th and 17th centuries, in part because it was just an era that interested me, uh, in part because the evidence for climatic impacts was strongest. And while that evidence has certainly uh, grown since then, I developed a certain specialty in it uh, back when the evidence for climatic impacts uh, in earlier and later centuries was not always as clear. So my first book was about the Ottoman Empire. And in particular, it started with just what seemed to me a, a interesting coincidence, if it was a coincidence uh, at all, uh, that there was one of the worst droughts in the eastern Mediterranean in probably the past millennium during the 1590s, uh, just at a time when a really destructive rural rebellion broke out in Anatolia. Uh, and that rebellion, it seemed to me, looking more closely at economic and demographic evidence, really marked a turning point in the fortunes of the Ottoman Empire. That investigation, which actually began as a, a dissertation project, ended up taking me down a completely uh, new avenue of research that I had never anticipated uh, in terms of reconstructing climate and reconstructing climate impacts and looking at historical documents from the Ottoman Empire and from European sources around it. Uh, and that's essentially what led me into climate history. Uh, but what really struck me most was not just that I was able to Prove, and I think really proved beyond much doubt uh, that the drought really was behind this rural rebellion, and it really did mark uh, a turning point in the Ottoman fortunes, both political, economic, uh, and also ecological, in terms of the long-term demographic impacts. Um, not only that I was able to prove that, but really that the evidence had always been there in plain sight, that past historians just hadn't been looking for it. And that really thrilled me, and it really raised me the possibilities of looking at climate history in other parts of the world. However, I guess to give a bit of a biographical background, after that uh, uh, dissertation, I ended up uh, starting my first position as an assistant professor at Oberlin College, which is a, a small uh, liberal arts college in northern Ohio. And being there with the teaching pressures I had, uh, a new family, it seemed more reasonable to start a second project that wouldn't involve spending years overseas. Mm. I also wanted to take a different intellectual focus, to move from the broad analysis approach that I'd taken in the first book, uh, really a very imperial perspective looking out over a whole empire, and try to see how climate influenced very particular events among very particular groups of people. That led me to uh, the current book that I'm writing, which is uh, now in contract with Harvard University Press, uh, which is about climate and early exploration and settlement in North America. Uh, it was, this has been an opportunity for me to look at some very well-documented uh, but small events among often small groups of people 
as they struggled to get a foothold in a new continent, uh, which also, uh, but which also have a great historical significance because whether a particular settlement uh, survived or failed um, could have very long-term repercussions for the fates of empires in North America. This project uh, has taken me a bit longer than I thought because it's actually been intellectually, uh, historiographically interesting in a number of ways that I hadn't anticipated. It's taken me into new fields of research in terms of the early history, or you might even say the prehistory of climatology in early modern Europe, uh, into Native American history and the impact of the Little Ice Age on Native Americans. Uh, and it, it should allow me to, I think, look at the Little Ice Age in a different way, um, as different groups of people struggled with it on a more uh, intimate uh, level, as opposed to so the broader imperial context uh, with which I dealt with in the first book. Just a, just a fascinating project, and uh, I should mention actually that first book is The Climate of Rebellion in the Early Modern Ottoman Empire, published with Cambridge University Press, and it's, uh, it's just a fantastic book. Um, now, sticking with this on the Little Ice Age and bringing it a little bit into the present, recently I got a request to post something on the Climate History Network homepage and historicalclimatology.com. It was an advertisement for new heating systems, <laughs> new, new heaters, because there is going to be, apparently, another monitor minimum. <laughs> and, we, and, and we need new heaters and new ovens to protect us from that. <laughs> I'm not sure if you've run into this research, but it's based on solar modeling. It's actually quite interesting. Apparently, we're heading towards another solar minimum in the next uh, decade or two. Now, I think from the perspective of the past, we can say why that's ridiculous, obviously. Perhaps you can, you can chime in here. Why is it so ridiculous um, that we would be posting <laughs> these advertisements for heating projects and products on our websites? So I think there are a few things that people need to understand about the Little Ice Age. Um, we think about it both in terms of its climatology and its role in history. At the most, uh, the Little Ice Age it was perhaps a one degree centigrade average cooling in the northern hemisphere. And I think that the, even that is probably uh, a bit on the high end of estimates. Mm -hmm. uh, certainly there were periods that were significantly colder than that, uh, but the average was not that great. What made it significant for human history was the vulnerability of people living at the time. Uh, and this is particularly true, true during cases of, of war, of population pressure, uh, and of political uh, strife or instability. So it can't, in that sense, uh, be separated from its, its human context. And that's another reason why the late 16th century and early 17th are so interesting, because these were periods of uh, particular uh, population pressure, economic troubles, and instability uh, in Europe and also in, in uh, China. So it, the idea that we need to worry about that kind of cooling again in the future is a little is a little silly because the anticipated effects of global warming from the release of uh, greenhouse gas emissions, land use change, uh, far exceeds uh, the cooling uh, from natural causes during the Little Ice Age. And we also remember that the real severe times of the Little Ice Age were usually brought about not by the larger factors behind that cooling trend, which seem to be related. Uh, in mainly to 
uh, changes in orbital cycles, uh, so to some extent, some spots, uh, and perhaps glandular change. Uh, but really, those, those very cold times uh, were about volcanic eruptions. Mm -hmm. And as we get better records of volcanic eruptions, precisely when they occurred, uh, and what their impact was based on uh, new treating records, especially from uh, maximum liquid density studies, uh, we can see that that was really behind some of the worst periods, uh, such as the 1590s to early 1600s or 1690s. Uh, we can trace the particular causes of uh, exceptionally bad years uh, to increasingly particular volcanic eruptions. Because sulfur aerosols are scattering sunlight when they get into the atmosphere. Yes, exactly. Uh, it, it, it's, it's largely because of you know, reduced uh, sunlight coming in because of uh, the dust and sulfates reaching high atmosphere. It's particularly from large tropical eruptions. Yeah. <laughs> You'll be happy to know that I'm not posting those advertisements <laughs> on our websites. <laughs> but it's, it's okay. I mean, I, I once uh, was co-author on an article about uh, different proposals for uh, geoengineering for, for climate engineering, um, and it was it was largely critical uh, of those proposals. Uh, but I yes, I did immediately get emails afterwards um, talking about uh, government conspiracy theories related to uh, you know contrails and and uh, you know what's going on overhead and that sort of thing. So so there's there is definitely a, a fringe out there related to all climate issues that we we have to be careful about. Yeah, uh, and and that, that actually has often been one of my concerns in. Uh, putting together the climate history network, uh, but I think it's it's a concern that we don't need to take too seriously usually, uh, and it certainly shouldn't let us get in the way of serious scholarship. Yeah, yeah. Um, no, I I I share with you that concern, <laughs> but so far so good. Um, I did, by the way, just uh, on this a couple of days ago, I attended a talk by Thomas Armstrong, one of the leading scientists, kind of spearheading government policy into addressing climate change. And, uh, and I was quite shocked by what he shared about the way that geoengineering is now being approached in American policy circles, that this is something that's being increasingly seriously considered, um, and that they're kind of looking for micro-scale um, experiments that can be safely translated to a macro uh, level. So this, this was quite surprising to me, but then he shared with me um, some of the projections for the future in the Arctic, in Russia, and in Canada. And according to some of the best projections now, apparently winter temperatures there in 2099 will be 13.5 degrees Celsius higher than they are right now. So winter temperatures, overall 7.5, in winter 13.5. And so when we're talking about the Little Ice Age, we're talking about a cooling of about 1 degree Celsius, but we're facing something so much more extreme that it becomes, to me anyway, hard to know how we might apply the lessons from the past to the more distant future. And so that's my final question. Do you think that the kind of work that we do is active history, and do you think it has a role in preparing people, preparing governments for a warmer world? Yes. And the reason is, is that there are, I believe, certain important basic human elements about the experience of climate change. And while we're dealing with periods of less change uh, than we can expect in the generations ahead, uh, we're also dealing with periods where people were often particularly vulnerable. And so I think there is a great deal to be shared about the human experiences of the past and how they might relate to human experiences of the future. 
And this has actually inspired me to start planning my next big project, uh, which I would really like to be a more open-ended study of climate extreme weather and migration. Uh, because even though the climate changes that we're expecting ahead are, are larger, uh, we can certainly see climatic changes and extreme events in the past uh, that led to migration on a large scale. And I think understanding, for instance, what led people to migrate, um, in what circumstances, uh, how they were received, uh, whether that migration would not have happened or would still have happened in spite of climate change. Um, these are all valuable lessons uh, that we can take from the past to the present. And as long as we're trying to imagine the future and come up with policy without that past to guide us, it's like we're trying to drive forward without a roadmap or you know, we're trying to drive forward perhaps without a rearview mirror might be a better uh, analogy here. There's a lot to be added simply from a better understanding of the past. If it can lead us to identify very strong particular patterns uh, that might still guide us in the future, uh, that's excellent. But even if it doesn't, I think just simply the, the basic understanding, uh, even, even wisdom of just knowing more about how people have endured analogous situations, uh, will be useful for us. It will help us avoid missteps or perhaps ask better questions as we move ahead. Well, Professor White, thank you so much for joining us. Just fascinating stuff. All right, thank you. Thank you very much.